0: Thank you, Mark, for filling in tonight. John Benham is uh, at Crystal Evangelical Free Church leading the Summer Youth Orchestra. Uh, there, the same one that we heard this morning in our worship service. Well, I understand there was a good time had by all yesterday at the church picnic. You can tell who was there. They're the ones with the sunburned faces. I, uh, I'm sorry there wasn't a beach for you to enjoy, but I heard that there was a faucet that got plenty of use, and that uh, water balloons and cups of water, etc., etc., were utilized, that's good. This is really hot weather, isn't it? I knew it was hot when I looked out this afternoon and saw a bird in the backyard getting a worm using hot pads to pull it out. <laughs> when I saw that, I knew it was hot today. Would you please open your Bible to First Corinthians chapter 10? I'm beginning this evening a series which I'm calling The End of the Ages. People have often talked about and written about the end of the world. There seems to be an innate awareness that there is a conclusion to this madness in the world. Ecologists, for example, are telling us that unless we learn to mend our ways, the human race will cease to be because of pollution in our environment. Politicians and diplomats tell us that unless we learn to live in peace in what they like to call the global village, uh, unless we learn to get along on this planet, uh, we're going to be blown to bits. And then religious teachers as well, even of the false variety, have occasionally predicted the end of the world. How many of you remember the Kohotek Comet? Would you lift your hand? Uh, would you believe that that's been 13 years ago since that was in the news? But I remember at the time that that comet was coming, there were those who were predicting that with its arrival would come the end of the world. In particular, I remember the uh, leader of the cult called Children of God who made that prediction. And that prediction variously comes, and perhaps even more so, with the turn of centuries and with the change of the millennium, which we are about to face, and enter into the 2000s. I think that we can expect more predictions along this line. Well, in fact, the Bible does declare that this world as we know it shall come to an end. Perhaps a better way to say it, at least for purposes of this series of messages, is that this age in which we live will come to an end. An age may be defined in biblical terminology as a period of time that is noted by certain moral and spiritual characteristics. If you look back over the period of history since the beginning, since creation as God has revealed it to us in his word, history seems to fall out into these periods which were noted by certain revelation from God and tests that God gave to mankind. Now in 1 Corinthians 10:11, Paul makes an astounding statement He says, now these things happened to them as an example. He is talking about the previous things mentioned in the first nine or ten verses of this chapter to Israel. And he says, these things happened to them. That is, they are truly historical events. But more than that, he says, and they were written for our instruction In other words, the Old Testament is not merely a collection of nice stories. They are recorded historical events, which were written down so that you and I might learn from them. And then he describes us as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Apostle Paul seems to be saying here that all of the preceding ages find their culmination, find their fulfillment or their, their completion in the age in which you and I live today. We are talking about what is sometimes termed the age of the church or others prefer to call it the age of grace. It is called the Age of Grace because of those events which initiated this period of time. That is, the coming of our Savior into the world. The grace of God has appeared, says Paul to Titus, has appeared in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but in his crucifixion for us, and his resurrection from the dead, in his ascension back to heaven. In all of these gracious events, Uh, In the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, there was the beginning of this age, and so it is often called the Age of Grace. It began at that period of time, uh, officially, we believe, with the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, as Jesus said he would come, having been sent by the Father and the Son to bless us. And not only to bless us, but to reside in us and to set us apart as a unique people in the history of the world. Those people whom God is calling out as a people or as a bride, a body for his son. And so this age began with his coming, the Holy Spirit's coming. And this age will end yet in the future. An age does not have a certain number of years to it. It is simply when the purpose of God has been fulfilled. I think it might be helpful if we ask certain questions to introduce this subject tonight and then on later evenings we will talk about some of the specific things that we anticipate as we look toward the end of this age. The first question I'd like to ask is this, what is the nature of this age? That is, how does the Bible describe it to us? Well, as I've already intimated, God in each age, including this one, gives a revelation of himself and his will to man. And in that age, he allows man to respond, and man does in the course of history as it flows out. And then finally, at the time of God's appointment, he dramatically steps in and concludes the age. And it is interesting that as we go back into Genesis and trace these ages, we can see that each of the ages ends with some sort of judgment from God upon uh, man because man has not responded appropriately to his revelation. And so God initiates the period with some new word, some new revelation of himself, and then man is left to respond to that revelation. That does not mean that God is uninterested as the years roll, that God somehow goes away and then comes back at the end of the age. Indeed, not because God is fully involved in all that takes place through the age. But what I'm saying is that as the age unfolds, He chooses not to interrupt the normal process of events. Now there are some exceptions. excuse me, Jerry, I want the air conditioner on. Thank you. I want it left on so we're kept cool in here. I appreciate that. Thank you. Can you not hear at the back? Is there a problem with hearing? Can you not hear? All right. Can you hear now? All right, let's turn the sound up then. But let's keep the air conditioning on. I don't want to use hot pads with this message. All right. And so what I'm saying is that God chooses not to interrupt the flow of history, but with some exceptions. Now, I want to show you an example of what I'm talking about. Would you turn back to Matthew chapter 24, please? Matthew chapter 24, and beginning in verse 36. I'm sorry if some of you did not hear the first part of the message We'll have a tape for you afterward, and maybe you can pick it up there. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows. Now the question is, what day and hour is he talking about? If you go back earlier into the chapter, you find that he's talking about the hour of his return, the day when he comes again. And Jesus is saying, not even the angels nor the Son Himself, at least during His earthly ministry, knew when that day or hour would be when He would come again. The Father alone knew. And He says in verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And so Jesus refers back to an earlier period of time, an earlier age, the pre Diluvian age, before the flood. He says, For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, what our Lord is doing is saying this In the days of Noah, God allowed that civilization that lived in that day, in that age, to go on without some special intervention until the day of the flood. But up until that point, he simply had his man, Noah, preaching righteousness to that generation. What were they doing in response? Noah was saying, judgment is coming. The end of this age is here. God is going to send a flood. All flesh will be destroyed. And what was the response of the people at large? Well, Jesus said that they did not heed. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. That's part of the routine of life, but that's the point. They went on about life with no heed to what God was saying to them. The warning that God was given, giving through his prophet. So I believe that Jesus is saying that this age will be similar to that. That even up until the very last moment, people in general will not give heed to what God is saying in his word. He, they will not listen to the warnings that he is giving. That judgment is coming. As in that day, they will go on about the routine of life paying no attention. And so that is something of what this age is going to be like. God did ultimately step in. He brought judgment. The ark was prepared. The animals, Noah and his family, were brought in. And God shut the door. The age finished with judgment. And I am convinced with a global flood, not a local flood, but a global flood, destroyed the whole world. And then God started again with Noah and his family and his descendants. So what is the nature of this age? Well, it is a time when God is giving uh, truth to mankind. He has given it to us here in this book. It is being declared to people. And it is a time when God is testing man with respect to that, to see what man will do with it. And apart from those in whom the Holy Spirit works to bring them to faith... There is an ignoring or even a rejecting of the message of God in this age as in every age because of the hardness of the heart of man as we were talking about this morning. Now if you'll turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13, we see another word from our Lord regarding the nature of this age. In Matthew 13, we have a series of parables That Jesus calls in verse 11, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish people anticipated the kingdom of heaven, that is, heaven's rule over the earth. The messianic age, that was what they longed for. Their hearts ached for that fulfillment of the coming of Messiah. How tragic that when he came to his own, his own received him not. They did not want him. They turned from him as a nation at that point. And so the kingdom of heaven, that is, the direct rule of heaven over the earth, was postponed. And God is bringing about something in this age that was totally unrevealed until that rejection took place. That's why it's called the mysteries here. These are things that were not revealed up to this point. And so our Lord gives us in Matthew chapter 13 some understanding of the kingdom of heaven as it is in this age. It's not what the Jewish people expected it to be. It is an invisible kingdom, a hidden kingdom. It's taking place in the hearts of people. It's not an outward visible kingdom with Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That will come. But the kingdom of heaven in this age is in its mystery form, and that's what Jesus explains to us here. Now, he tells several parables, as I've said, but in verse 24, we have the beginning of the parable of the wheat and the tares. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now what does this parable mean? We're not left to, to guess, because Jesus explains it to his disciples, beginning in verse twenty or verse uh, thirty six, where they ask for the explanation. And then he says in verse thirty seven <clears throat> The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That is Jesus' name for himself. So make no mistake about it, the one who is sowing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, the field is the world. Not just the church, but the field is the whole world, the world at large. And he says, the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. That is, those who believe in him in this age. Those in whom God's kingdom has been established personally. Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, which you and I enjoy as citizens of his kingdom as it is now. We are the sons of the kingdom, and our Lord has distributed us. He has sown us throughout the world. But it goes on to say, And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And so all of these these, uh, figures in the parable are explained to us. And the devil has also sown his sons, his seed, as it were, in the world. Who are they? Well, they are the counterfeit Christians. Those religious people, some of them... Even very sincerely religious people who have no personal relationship to the King, to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not sons of the kingdom, but they are sons of the evil one because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though they may call themselves Christians, Though they may attend a church with the name Christian right on it, it doesn't make them Christians. We have here Satan's counterfeit. And as most of you know, that is Satan's number one ability to produce counterfeits. He is not an ingenious creator, but he is an ingenious counterfeiter. And so he sows his seed in the world. That in some respects look like the real thing, but are not. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, he says, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness And will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Obviously he is talking there about hell. And then he says the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so our Lord says that ultimately this age will end with a division. And he says that there will be a separation made. He is talking here about the very end of this age. There are some things that will take place before this, which will also produce a separation, and we will talk about that in the coming weeks. But at the very end, when our Lord comes again to the earth, at that moment there will be a separation, and only the righteous, only the sons of the kingdom will enter in to his kingdom on the earth and those who are the children of the enemy the children of the evil one will be pulled out from the population of the world the angels will gather them and they will be cast into hell those are the words of jesus and so what are we to expect in this age we are to expect that alongside the real thing there will be the counterfeit and we're not to become overly alarmed about that. We're not to seek to root out the counterfeit. We're just to keep on living for the Lord. The Lord will take care of the counterfeit at the end of the age. The Bible declares that this age will grow worse and worse and will degenerate and culminate in judgment. I personally believe that we are at the close Of this age. I believe that for a number of reasons, I'd like to suggest just a couple of them to you tonight. One is because the Bible predicts that this age will be closed with a time of unprecedented moral and spiritual decay. And it seems to me that we are living in that day, not just in one civilization or one society, but around the world there is a general, unprecedented, moral and spiritual decay. <clears throat> Would you turn with me, please, to Second Timothy chapter 3. As the Apostle Paul brings to a close his ministry of writing. And as he pens this last book inspired by the Spirit of God, he concludes with these words written to Timothy, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now there is one sense in which the last days, embraces this entire age. That is, That that phrase refers to the period of time following the complete revelation given in Jesus Christ. We see that in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. This whole age, in one sense, is called the last days in the history of the world. But the phrase also is used, it seems, in the New Testament to describe the last days of the last days. That is the conclusion of this period in which we are now living. Now the Apostle says difficult times will come. That is grievous times, savage times, times that will be beastly, times that will be hard to deal with. And then he describes what society will be like. He says men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. Their outward boasting will come from the pride within their arrogant hearts. Revilers, blasphemers, that is, those who abuse others with their tongues. Disobedient to parents. There will be a crisis of authority in the last days, even in the most basic of elements in society—that is, the home. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving—the idea there no family love, not even the normal kinds of of love that exist within a home, within a a mother, father, children setting. It will not exist. Irreconcilable. People will not be willing to compromise. Irreconcilable. Malicious gossips. Without self-control. Brutal. Literally, people will live like animals and treat each other like animals. Haters of good. Treacherous. Reckless. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And he says, stay away from people like this. That is, do not become intimately associated with them in their worldliness. So those are the characteristics of the closing days of this age. As we go down that list, we have to admit that some of these have been known in history... Here and there, as civilizations have crumbled and decayed, been destroyed. But I wonder, has there been a day when these things have all come together in such an unprecedented way, with such intensity as the day in which we live? And then look over with me, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, says Peter, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So this is part of the decay in the last days as well. People will say, well, yes, uh, there have been those talking about the second coming of Christ since he came the first time. Now, where's the promise? Why hasn't he come yet? And their argument, says Peter, is uniformitarianism. That is, things uniformly happen, that nothing has ever interrupted the flow of, of history before, they say, You know, that's the philosophical basis for evolution. That is, things have always been basically as they are now, and evolution flows from that. And Peter goes on to say that they willingly overlook, they choose to be ignorant of this fact that God once before did step into human history, and he points specifically to the Flood. Now, is there any historical event that raises such mocking today among archaeologists and scientists, geologists, and so on, as the flood? Why, who could ever believe in such a thing as a worldwide flood? Even some theologians, particularly of the liberal stripe, laugh and mock at such an idea that there ever was a literal Noah and a literal ark. Peter says, in the last days, they will be willingly ignorant. They will choose not to recognize the fact that God has indeed intervened in human history before, that the philosophy of uniformitarianism is false. And nonetheless, they will base their lives on it, and they will say, well, it's always been just like this. Things continue as they always have. I believe we're living in a day that is described here. It would be interesting, and this is merely a speculation on my part, it would be interesting, if in these last days of this age, God allowed the remains of the ark to be discovered on Ararat. Wouldn't that be interesting? to then listen to the explanations of people for this big boat on top of a mountain? Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily there. I don't know. I think that there is very curious and interesting evidence that there's something on that mountain that's quite unusual, that mountain in Turkey. But I'm simply speculating and say, wouldn't it be interesting if God allowed those remains to be uncovered at the end of this age? And uh, then see how men continue to claim uniformitarianism and deny a flood. It would also be interesting in light of those verses in Matthew 24 as it was in the days of Noah. At the end of this age, that uh, the ark or the remains of it might be there to testify to God's judgment previously and to remind them of God's judgment impending. And yet men undoubtedly would refuse that. Well, that's speculation. That's that's free tonight. You don't have to pay for that. But... uh, The end of this age is characterized, says the Bible, by a decline in moral and spiritual things. And we also see in other passages that there will be an upsurge of false teaching at the end of the age. Uh, Doctrines of demons, it says in 1 Timothy 4, will abound. Now what that means is satanic deceptions will abound. Demons will go throughout the earth creating all kinds of philosophies and ideas and religions in order to deceive people, to keep them from the truth. But I want to close with one verse or two verses from Titus. Because we need to wrap this up in some practical application to our lives, as we shall attempt to do each time we talk about this subject through the summer. As I say, we're going to be looking at some of the specific events in Scripture that are said to be a part of the end of this age. For now, let's go to Titus chapter 2. Let me remind you again of the verse I alluded to earlier, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And here's what the grace of God teaches us. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age God's instruction to you and me as we look at the conclusion of this age is found right here it is in the first place living a godly life the negative side of that and remember this morning we talked about the negative and positive so often being together here's another example On the one hand, denying ungodliness. And on the other hand, and also worldly desires. And on the other hand, living sensibly, the idea there is soberly, not being drunk with the intoxication of the world, but to have our minds functioning well sensibly, to live sensibly and righteously, making right decisions, though everybody else around us may choose the wrong, and also godly. Though this is an ungodly age, we are to live with God evident in our lives, though there will be those who will not choose him, and who will persecute those who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus we are nonetheless to live with our Lord in the center of our lives. Right now, in the now generation, in this present age. So we are to live godly. And secondly, verse 13, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We're to be looking for him, folks. That's how we're to finish out this age. On the one hand, living godly sensibly righteously denying that which is pressed upon us by the world refusing to be conformed to its mold for us and on the other hand as we're living here facing the reality of life as it is now we're to be looking looking for his glorious return that's a great encouragement I am convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ will come and deliver his own from the coming judgment, the coming holocaust in the world. We'll be talking about that perhaps the next time as we think about our Lord's glorious appearing for which we are looking. I'd like for us to sing together tonight a hymn that talks about this, number 248. It asks the question what if it were today? That's an important question for each of us to ask ourselves, what if it were today that he would come? Would I be found of him spotless, without blame? Would he find me living the way he wants me to live and looking for his return? I trust that would be true of every one of us. Let's stand together as we sing a verse of 248. What if it were today? Jesus is coming. we could sing that last little phrase there Jesus may come today because he may and if you do not have my friend the assurance of your sins forgiven and your heart being right with God if you're not ready for him to come to claim you as one of his redeemed his chosen ones will you tonight give your heart to Christ won't you come and see me afterward and say pastor I need to be sure about my own eternal destiny I'd love to sit down and talk with you. Promise not even to share my cold with you. But I would love to be able to answer your questions and open God's word and show you how tonight you can joyfully anticipate the return of the Savior. Let's bow together. And now, our Lord, our great God and Savior, we anticipate your coming. And we say, glory, glory. Oh, what joy that will bring to us when we see you face to face.